0: And, and I, one of the problems we have with the regenerative agriculture discussion today is it's about agriculture, not about food systems. Because we, don't, we cannot have re- regenerative agriculture unless our food systems are supporting that regeneration and are really acting in concert.
1: Welcome to the 283rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Ken Meter once did a study in a sparsely populated community in North Dakota that showed that if everybody in that region bought $5 worth of food weekly from a local farm, the overall economic value of those purchases would be greater than the money generated by thousands of acres of commodity crops grown in the area. This is a prime example of the kind of invaluable number crunching and analysis Ken has been doing over the past five decades. Meter, who's president of the Crossroads Resource Center, is expert at diving into often arcane statistics and drawing out trends that other analysts miss. As a former journalist, he also knows how to conduct interviews with farmers, small business owners, and local government officials, and use their insights to put a human face on the data. His conclusions aren't always easy to swallow. Turns out the U.S. agricultural system is really good at churning out record harvests of commodities that are sent all over the world or turned into industrial products like fuel. But this extractive system doesn't benefit the farmers or the communities they live in and has produced human health care costs that all of society pays for. The good news is that an increasing number of communities that are struggling with how to develop food systems that don't just export commodities and wealth out of the region have been bringing kin in to help them figure out how they can develop food webs that could support a more sustainable system. Over the years, he's worked with 144 community partners in 41 states, two provinces, and four tribal nations. Island Press recently did all of us a big favor when they published Building Community Food Webs, Kin's collection of highly readable case studies that describes how communities from Indiana and Montana to Colorado and even Hawaii are confronting the dysfunctional nature of an infrastructure that makes it easier to ship in tomatoes from hundreds or even thousands of miles away, rather than purchase them from the local farmer. I encourage anyone interested in how we can create a better way to pick up Ken's book. His opening chapter on the ways in which the U.S. farm economy extracts wealth from communities is worth the price of admission alone. As I outlined in Ear to the Ground episode number 282... LSP is currently working with the Crossroads Research Center as we begin examining how to create resilient food systems in places like western and southeastern Minnesota. I recently sat down with Ken to talk about the difference between local and community-based food, the important role grassroots efforts can play in creating vibrant communities, and why we can't fix agriculture as long as our food system remains so broken. But, as he points out at the beginning of our interview, before we dive into these other topics... We must come to terms with just how truly extractive and dysfunctional our current food and farming economy is.
0: It's a it's a term I started using in the 1970s, and nobody wanted to talk about it. And even today, I would say most policy circles and most academic circles do not want to talk about the extractive economy. It's the one elephant in the room that we sort of cannot solve the farm or the rural issue without addressing that straight up and saying, what we're doing now is taking wealth out of our communities. And when I started saying that during the farm credit crisis, people looked at me very queerly. but now there's no denying it when you go through rural America. It's very clear how that has happened, and physically it's very visceral to people. But it's also true that It's an uncomfortable thing. Um, People don't want to address it because it raises awkward conversations. But I also think there's really no answer without going toward that. That's one of the reasons it's the first chapter of my book, because to me, it sort of frames both why we're having such trouble doing community food work and also why we need to do it so so urgently. The whole the whole balance of those forces is right there. It came out for me really um, in some interviews I had with farmers in Minnesota, in Green Isle, Minnesota, back in mm-hmm. 1978 79. I was doing this kind of interview at that time. I, I, had, I, I was just starting out as a journalist myself at that point, and I had a chance to work for a small town um, weekly in Lesour, Minnesota. And that got me in contact with a little environmental group of farmers called SAVE, Save America's Vital Energy, which had stopped a power plant from intruding in their neighborhood. And as I got to know those guys, they told me very rich stories about when the farm economy was healthy. And those are those of stories I wrote down in the book called Green Isle, which came out in 1983. They ended up predicting a farm credit crisis in 1979 when I was interviewing them in ways that I had heard nobody else talk about. And it wasn't until about the mid-'80s, where the America realized that we were in a crisis. But they were the first people I heard who said, this is going to fall apart. They talked about a time when they, this was a community of guys who had all started to farm around, right after the war, around 1950. They had all bought land together. They had all started families together. And they were evangelical Christian. They were conservative Lutheran, they were Baptists, they were Catholics, they were NFO, they were Farmers Union, they were Farm Bureau, and they were Republicans and Democrats, but they all recognized that we have to raise our kids together if we're going to have a healthy community and if we're going to have healthy kids. Yeah. And they let all that slide, and they worked incredibly hard to make sure their kids got four ribbons of the county fair and got to go to the state fair, and that they, the kids learned how to be good citizens. At that time, USDA had these farmers home, FHA had these farmer home local committees, which were reviewing loan applications. It was a very wonderful policy system for making sure we could understand what was happening in the rural economy. Where every time a low resources farmer came up and asked for a loan, his neighbors would review that loan application and say, is he... Telling the truth or not, is it, we can see what he's doing in the field. Does that match with what we see in the loan application? And that reality check helped on people understand whether that loan was a good loan or a bad loan. That got wiped out after the farm credit crisis was over uh, by political forces who didn't want us to know that. What, they, what those farmers told me was you could start farming in 1950 and in one year make money enough to make a down payment on buying land. That's almost laughable today. One guy raised eggs for a year, and then he had money for make a down payment. He said, you would only go to a bank as a last resort. You kind of take your hat in hand and say, I'm really sorry I have to ask for money, but I can't go next year without a loan. And the banker was put in a position of actually deciding who got to belong in the community and who didn't, because if they turned down, down your loan, you might have to look for work somewhere else. So it's a very interesting, very different time than what we have right now. But what those folks, those farmers, told me was that, you know, the community had its own sources of generating its own revenue and its own wealth from farming back in 1950, and we've gone through a time when that's almost totally impossible today, almost entirely by policy decisions that we've made very politically and consciously that were wrong. And they were done, they were done by both parties when both parties were in power but they've been done on a set of assumptions that if we just scale up agriculture somehow, um, everything will be fine. The joke the farmers told I'm sure you've heard many people say is, you'll lose on every unit, but you'll make up make up on the volume. And that kind of attitude was very much um, prevalent in those days. So uh, as I got continued, to, I mean, first of all, I got to write this little book, which predicted there was a credit credit crisis coming, which turned out to be the core of the farm credit crisis in the 1980s. Then I started covering the crisis as a journalist. um, And I I, I know I covered the first uh, foreclosure bankruptcy proceedings in, in Western Minnesota in that era and some real tragic developments during that time. What was so uh, amazing was that the farmers were talking about a system where basically they were now farming and wealth was being taken out of their hands as they farmed. They didn't use those terms. I don't think they understood it quite that way at that time, but I, I took their comments and I wrote that book and then I went to the grad school for a year and I found that there was data that the USDA was compiling and reporting annually that totally backed up their story and no one was talking about that. So I started talking about that and People basically thought I was crazy, but over time that became a draft for a book I was going to write someday called The Extractive Economy, and that never got written and also seemed like a too negative way to, to, to talk about it. And then, I, then I talked about a book called The Reversing the Extractive Economy, but nobody was willing to talk about the extractive economy yet, so that didn't make sense to people either. Over time, that's developed into my chance with my work to get to 41 states around the country and work in 144 regions, helping people develop some response to that reality and in, in, in just some real precious interviews and connections I've made in that work. Now we're able to talk publicly that there is an extractive economy, but it's taken us 40 years for that to become something we can even talk about. And I think the... Um, purpose of my first chapter is to really say, okay, we know it's extractive now, but why is it extractive? Mm-hmm. And I talk about really it's because of farm debt. Farmers have been willing to take on farm debts that they could not handle. They did it because they wanted to have a bigger tractor. They wanted to have prestige with their neighbors. They wanted to have boast the that they could produce more corn per acre whatever. That process of taking on debt is... One, what allows you to sur- to survive as a larger farmer, but also is what threatens your existence as a farmer, because if you cannot pay the loan back, you might lose your land. It also drives the fact that farmers are making about five times the income off-farm now than they are from farming. Yet they continue to farm because they like the lifestyle and they like being on the land, and they feel very connected to their families and their roots in those communities. So I think the uh, the book is an effort to say... It's paying, credit, uh, paying debt on loans, and I'm tracking $800 billion, leaving more, more leaving the farm sector from interest payments than the federal government has ever put back into the farm sector over the last century. And over time, we've had richer data sets. I've been able to put better graphic displays together. Those are all charted out in the book. And it just kind of shows how the farm credit crisis wasn't just a credit crisis, but it was an excuse for the power structure to get farmers to buy into going to scale in a way that took more resources out of their communities. And very few people are willing to discuss it, even today.
1: It reminds me of a a special series of articles that came out from Bloomberg News a few years ago, where they were looking at the farm economy in a particular part of Iowa, and basing it on land prices were going through the roof. It was record prices, and we're still seeing that in some cases. But they were saying, based on that, some folks were saying, look how healthy the farm economy is. But they said that they really I'll give them credit they really dug into it and they said no it it shows that we have a basically some landed gentry <laughs> who have a lot of wealth tied up in land but we have a lot of people which is what it should be about who are not making money off of farming and are kind of the serfs kind of situation you know we're kind of going back to the day back in Europe where we had that kind of situation. And I thought that was a really insightful way, and that's kind of some of the things you're looking at is people, if they pay attention at all to farm news, they may see, oh, commodity prices are at a record high or land prices are at a record high. That doesn't say anything about how that that community, that local community is doing. I think the mechanics of what you're doing is really important, how you're able to download information. But the questions you approach those numbers is so different than maybe what a lot of people, uh, it, uh, the way a lot of people approach it.
0: I, I've tried to make ask questions that no one else asks because that's sort of my reason for being on the planet. But that also gets to be weird sometimes to be in that role. And I know the Rand Corporation did a very interesting study about wealth uh, creation in America just before my book came out, in fact, too, which really showed the flow of money from uh, into the metropolitan economy and into the wealthy um, class, too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're now starting to get that conversation to be a little bit more earnest and honest. But um, it's just it's just very hard for people to, I mean, you know, we're kind of in denial about mm-hmm. lots of things right now, yeah. and this is one of them. But I've, I was just bring some interviews from another state this morning, a colleague of mine did with some farmers, and the farmers are saying, this is not, none of us are making money, it's not working for any of us, but we got to go to scale. <laughs> And that's the that's the kind of crunch we're in because yeah. we're so uh, imbued or so yeah you know, we so uh, we have the habit of thinking that the only market for food is uh, abroad and the only way to get efficient and to make money is to go to scale right. and that there's no answers possible when you think that's the only answer.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some of the studies you've done because you you said that some of the information you've dug out is is pretty dark pretty negative, <laughs> but. A couple things that I took away from your book was, first of all, it's great that you're working with these communities, but first of all, it's great that these communities care enough about the future and have enough of a positive view that they're approaching you and saying, hey, could you take a look at this? What are some alternatives that we can look at? They haven't completely given up, I guess, and they're not saying hey, could you come in and help us figure out how we could get $10 corn, you know, or how we could add value to the same old commodities? Uh, I think that that's, that's a step in, a, in a, it. You know, they say the first, first step is to acknowledge you've got a problem. I think some of these communities are acknowledging there's a problem with the traditional farm economy, and then they're seeking you out.
0: Your, your reference to the first step reminds me that one of the ways I talked about this in the early days, which again, I abandoned because it wasn't really connecting with people. But I think you can say that because of the extraction of the wealth, we have a, a economy that creates dependency. It's another dependency like chemical dependency. And it's the hardest one because we have such a myth of the economy being healthy in this country. But I would say also the the community foods movements have been underway at least since 1970 in my experience and of course there were earlier ones before but there's this whole history of people knowing it's wrong trying to do something about it getting marginalized doing what they can do and out of that came the co-ops in the Twin Cities out of that came a lot of the people who raise kids and their kids or their grandkids have become the leaders of new new, new efforts right now but I could never have done this alone even though it's been a lonely path I've really depended on that kind of support and interest from other folks all around the country. What's clear to me is the creative edge of this is at the community level where people sit down honestly with each other and say, it's not working. What are we going to do together? And they start coming up with some response that's collective rather than I'm going to stay in my hole and not think about it, or I'm going to solve it by being the hero or whatever else in between. And uh, those are very difficult steps for Americans to take right now. But um, without that social movement without that energy, without that vision at the grassroots, it'd be very hard for any of this to happen. And that allowed me to cover what they were doing. And it was because of that, that word of mouth spread about what I was doing. And that helped me get out mostly through the Community Food Security Coalition, but also LSP was a main player in that, getting me around Minnesota when my first studies came out in Minnesota in 2001 and 2004 and so on. I find I get a lot of inspiration, energy, and just moral support from that movement. And yet, there's also an effort now to kind of say, business will take care of this, the academy will take care of this, the non-profit structure will take care of this. We have funders that think that the answer is to have larger nonprofits that are more successful, not to have healthy, thriving communities. Now we have um, amazing money coming into the question of community development, community food, and all that stuff, which is, in many ways, being spent in very conventional ways without... Shaking up our assumptions, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm actually feeling frustrated right now because I think a lot of the activity that came out of our insistence that we have to address this problem is now going to make the problem even worse. Now the federal government is giving money to nonprofits to train communities how to do the work, rather than how to listen to what they've been doing all along, or to go out and find the leaders and help embrace their work and embrace what's emergent, rather than saying that some of the technical experts have the vision and the answers. Yeah. but it's much safer to say we have a organization addressing that problem than it is to actually solve the problem in the community because that involves a lot of complexity, a lot of difficult conversations, and a lot of time that we don't want to believe we're going to need to take. Okay. And and, and I, you know that's one of the, one of the things I've been most proud of in my work is trying to develop an analysis of where we're working in a food system is changing every day. Sometimes when I measure something, it's obsolete by the time I report it, and yeah. that's true with a lot of the bo- the books that you and I both read, or the the reports you and I both read. Where the data is superb, but it, it tells a story that's old, and we have models based on a stable reality instead of on the fact that there are things moving and changing all the time and we have to look, see what's emerging to create a better way, What's what we need to do more of to make, to get where we want to go, and how do we do less of the stuff that's really pushing us backward. And that whole process of reflecting inside as a community, reflecting on change, reflecting on um, building trust to have conversations that are difficult, and that's just a very, um, very difficult thing because we believe so much in this kind of pure, notion of individual freedom rather than autonomy inside a community context
1: one of the things that really struck me like uh for example when i was reading the i call them case studies but there there's just just descriptions of kind of what some of the work you've been doing with these communities for example the one in montana how many moving parts there were and how how important teamwork was
0: you know, Montana was a wonderful place for people just sitting down and being honest with each other about what to do. And they, they described very honestly in the chapter about the fights they had and how they had very principled disagreements where they'd say, okay, this is what I think, here's what you think. How do we come up with some resolution or some way of working together without agreeing? And um, they were just masters at doing that, um, partly because the population was. Uh, fairly small and they were remote from policy circles they were able to kind of take their own stance and not be worried too much about who was looking at them which again is much more difficult today but i also you know the the folks there like lsp had a real hi- had a, a real history of how do we come up with a piece of legislation that both both parties can support and how do we do something that will move us in the right direction but also attract wide support so it won't get dismantled the next term and mm-hmm. those conversations are quite difficult to have but there i think the the chapter that chapter of the book really i think has wonderful stories about that collaboration and i've seen lots of other writing about montana that doesn't Pick up on that notion of collaboration, there's still more of a tendency to celebrate heroes and heroines rather than the fact that people in community just found a way to really trust each other.
1: That's a super good point. I know as a journalist, it's so much easier to write about some superstar, some rock star type person who's got a real uh, engaging personality than to kind of dig into this collaborative type effort. And, and I think you do a really good job of that in the book of showing this is, everybody's involved, even some people you'd be surprised at who's involved with something like this who might care about food or farming, that kind of thing.
0: I tried to write in my in my journalism background about you know bigger issues and about people collaborating, but they're not popular articles and and I think you know that's it's difficult to get attention for the book because it's a story about people collaborating, not a story about trauma yeah. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a big I mean there's some conflict in there, but it's not a story about conflict and and I think we're we're now kind of devolving our discussion down this is, gets back to our previous discussion gets down to personalities and do we support a famous personality or the person who has the most social network? hits, or yeah. uh, the person who has the, the prettiest face, or is it really about the substance of building vibrant communities, which, which is a process that takes long-term investment, very patient thought, very careful analysis. And you see countries in Austria, Norway, Holland, doing that very reliably over decades And then, of course, now we have that screen. We can't learn from Europe. We can't learn from anyone else. Uh, African communities have been masters at collaborating with each other under incredibly trying circumstances, but we seldom hear that sort of the story of Africa. But I think what really is most crucial is that it's, First of all, it's people, as we said before, sitting down and trusting each other and just saying, okay, let's, let's have those conversations that are difficult and make sure we kind of, we know who we're, what we're about, what we're trying to get after, what our vision is and how we want to overlap and how we have to keep separate. Um, that's the first thing. And it's a group of people who can pull that off. But then I think most food webs that are successful are very good about drawing upon the unique assets of their place. What do we need One of the strengths we have, one of the capacities we can leverage to make something happen based on our own vision.
1: So one of your chapters addresses this idea of differentiating between uh, local and community-based. Can you talk about why that's so important? Because that that's something that I've noticed a shift in, a little bit in language, but also I think it's a little confusing for people for the general public
0: It's very confusing and, and, and I, I say and I say in the book I use the word local as a shorthand because everybody loves the word local yeah. and you know it's raised to sell the concept of locality, but also the reality of locality is often not very strong mm-hmm. um, in fact i I did some work in farm to school here in Minnesota and found out that one of the schools I um, studied had declared bananas one of their top five local food items and they on their school food, food budget. And you know something's wrong when you see results like that. The word local is very good because it, it suggests we hunker down and settle in the community and work with our neighbors and all those good things. However, it's so very easy to greenwash that term or local wash that term and say, well, what we're doing is local. And one of the classic examples is the farmer who told me about um, the major corporation that considered local food anything they could ship within 24 hours, which meant that Mexican produce was local to southwest Indiana. And it meant that the whole concept of locality just was meaningless. It was just basically, you know, do we have a truck going somewhere and can we fill it? That's really all it meant. Well, and the folks in Montana, I think, they had the most eloquent answer for that. They said, "Okay, we're we're working with communities that are on the border of Manitoba, border of Saskatchewan. Well, is local food buying food from Manitoba or is it buying something from Mani- from somewhere in Montana? <laughs> if, if they go into North Dakota, is it longer local food?" And and I think those. Um, Those got them really thinking in very different terms about what local food meant. And they said, well, we're really trying to build our food systems that are community-based. And they started using the term community-based food systems. And that's really what I like to, that's what I prefer I find we kind of have to really bring that back and that's one of the reasons I called the, the book Building Community Food Webs because to me the concept of a web and a spider weaving a set of relationships or a set of filaments that are very fragile individually but have a lot of strength together that represents the kind of work we're doing or the, the web of mycelia working underground to bring nutrition and information and you know water or whatever under the soil from plant to plant or through the network that's what natural systems do that's what people do and what we we really have to do is understand those treasure those give those more leverage and then not get in the way of them working
1: do we maybe get a little too fixated on food miles
0: Oh we totally do yeah because I mean I, I mean I, I think I think food miles is an interesting story I mean my, my answer to that is rather than saying a food item is local, put the name of the farm on it. I learned this from my colleague Megan Goldenberg. You know, put the name of the farm on it. Put the, If you want to put the miles to that farm, you can, but then have information on that farm about organic practices. Are they are they doing good animal practices? You really can have information about the farm available to the consumer. And now you can get that with a QR code on your cell phone at some stores and at some farms. But um, the point would be, if I know who the farmer is, if I have access to making that decision, I can decide if that's local enough for me. There are there are chickens I buy from Minnesota that are less local than ones I don't want to buy because I don't like the, qual- the way they're, they're farmed. It's, a, it's 90 miles away rather than 100, 200 miles away, but I'd rather buy from a farm who I, whose practices I trust and whose um, information is open to me. So I think, to me, it's more important to know the name on the farm and to be informed as a consumer. Carlo Petrini from Slow Food has this wonderful term called a co-producer, where basically we're called on not simply to eat good meals, but to really understand and maybe get on the farm and know what the farmer goes through. And uh, that element of being a co-producer and kind of learning the aspects of production, I think is really pretty critical. And knowing that is better than shopping for something as branded as local that you buy because of that word. And I, I think the other thing, too, is like that's also key to the whole thing working over time because if if i just buy the word local if that's a brand i buy mm-hmm. then tomorrow i can buy some other brand it can be you know whatever i come up the, the red label maybe it look attractive right. or the you know the the uh, i'd say you know so-and-so's name is on that but if i really understand who the farmer is and have some trust of them as a farm it's that knowledge and that trust and that kind of understanding of each other that allows this to last over time which allows markets to last over time and that's the one thing that economic developers have the most trouble embracing right now is the notion that their their economic development work really is fundamentally built on community fabrics and community trust and not on how money flows or not on who invests in their community.
1: I want to back up a little bit on, um, I think some of the stuff I get the most excited about is when I see you come out with some, frankly, some really nice talking point statistics that, and I know that's not what you're about, that you're into the in-depth research and all that, but when we want to make change and affect policy and all that and, and get the word out to journalists and to the general public, these are such key pieces. And, and these are pieces that you'll, you'll be able to, to pull out of some of these mountains of numbers for a community showing, for example... If you just, it's not like you have to convert everything to a community-based food system. If you could just take a certain percentage of the land that you now are putting into corn and beans or or whatever and put it into somehow a more community-based food system where more of that wealth is being circulated in the local community and not being shipped out by rail or by truck, uh, this is then, you can extrapolate that This is the economic impact you're going to see in that community. I think that when I've seen people exposed to that information, their eyes really light up. It really clicks in them. They're like, oh, okay. Um, Because people always want to go to the extreme and say, well, we can't switch everything to this overnight. And obviously we can't. And we're not going to. But boy when it's just it's like a little bit they have these out some of these little changes can really have an outsized influence down the road for these communities um and you know we've seen it too it's it's you know you've been able to document how it does have that it's not just theoretical
0: yeah i mean i I did a study a long time ago and this is in north dakota where i I looked at a a rural region that's really quite sparsely populated but it turned out that if everybody in that region bought five dollars of food a week from a local farm it would generate more value than all the commodities that are growing on the thousands of acres of corn and beans or wheat or whatever they have out there. And um, and it would also bring more money in than the farm subsidies are brought in. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, I mean, it's just, inc- I mean, actually, I should, I should I should back up. They could make more net profit by doing that than um, by doing the commodities. So there's more money involved in the commodities, but there's also less inherent profitability. Yeah. But also, there's often more money coming in. And there's more value coming to the county from that than from subsidies coming yeah. from the federal government. And, um, you know, we're in a situation... I, I just did a study for uh, Central Illinois last week, uh, and 44% of all the personal income in this... 11 county region is coming from public sources. And by far the largest source of income is transfer payments from federal programs. So you have these very strong farm production counties where we're almost entirely dependent on decisions in Washington, D.C. about who gets supported and why and when. And yet you have the residents of those counties complaining about the government all the time and saying, get that federal money out of my life. And I think that that's really a very scary thing because we don't have the manufacturing base. We don't have the wealth generating from farming anymore. We don't have people with real tangible skills of knowing how to make the things work that they want to make work. That reality is upon the entire United States right now, but especially in, in, in rural communities, very hard to sustain that. Another little soundbite I work with, and, and I, I appreciate your paying attention to my complexity, but also the soundbites do have a role of motivating people to learn more and also just coming to the table to talk a bit. And the, um, the amount we're spending on medical care for diabetes in this country is $379 billion, which is 88% of all the money all the farmers earn selling all the commodities they sold in 2018. So essentially, when I give a dollar to a farmer for a bushel of corn or soybeans, I'm giving 88 cents to the medical system to treat me for the cost of a corn and soy based diet and a lack of exercise and sitting to and, and you know, um, a lack of knowledge about food and all those things are kind of wrapped up into that cost. But it's it's an incredible amount of money that we spend for um, health care on something that could be solved by eating better food and I think, you know, you look at the, uh, the whole focus we have on kind of rediscovering uh, indigenous lifestyles and what people knew when they had the freedom to live where they lived and to do that in a very respectful way of nature and also to live in a very patient way with each other and you know people grew up knowing which foods were healthy for them that were grown right there or they could harvest from the trees or from the from underground or whatever and people knew how to cook food together and they 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 used those times to celebrate life and to celebrate being together rather than buying something to store and take it home and eating by themselves yeah. and Uh, I think we're going to have to get back to some kind of indigeneity where we have that sort of sense of respect for nature and relationship to nature and trust of nature and trust of each other. And those skills were sort of automatically generated from that way of life. And if we don't discover those, we're going to all fail. But also, um, that's kind of the answer for a lot of the other issues we're facing around uh, injustice, racial inequity, and just the kind of um, clues, cluelessness of American politics right now.
1: Reading that first chapter, I'd say, well, here's a pretty, this guy's got a pretty dark view of uh, the ag economy. <laughs> but then you read the rest of the book and you're like, but he's doing something about it, or he's trying. He's working with communities that are doing something about it. Overall, where do you sit right now as far as your view of our food system? I mean, are you some, do you see some reason for optimism, or do we have just a lot of work to do before we even acknowledge that we've got a problem? Where, where do you kind of sit right now?
0: I mean, some people never made it through the first chapter at all. They just didn't want to look at numbers (laughs) and they didn't want to deal with a depressing story, which there's so much bad news right now. I can understand how a reader would feel that way too. But uh, to me, it's the essential things you need to know to move forward. You know, I I look back in my career and there are a couple states, Indiana and South Carolina, where studies I did 10 years ago are still being used and people come up and say, that's our Bible today. And that's that's not about the book. It's just about the body of work that I have to, to draw from. That doesn't mean they're going great guns. It means they're Backsliding in some ways, or not going as fast as I'd like to see it. But at least that information, that knowledge is there for people to refer back to Mm -hmm. if we can kind of muster the will to keep going at it. We need the commodities farmers raise. However, raising commodities for someone else is itself a fallacy. We need better public support. So the supports are not taking wealth out of our communities, but they're Mm -hmm. actually helping. Federal money should be an investment in a community, it should not be a cash flow. And, and I think that's the thing that I would like to see people get towards. And I don't think people are ready to hear that yet. Yeah. But um, we should be using those federal dollars to build new structures. It's starting to come out of the new federal funding uh, build, back, build Back Better program today. We're yeah. getting these investments in new infrastructure, new physical facilities, new knowledge bases, and so on. Yeah, it's, re- it's very bleak in many ways. At the same time, you know, a community I worked in 10 years ago came back to me last year and said, you know, we we want to study our farm economy again because we realize we need to feed ourselves. And this is a foundation that had not really, they had paid for a study before, but they hadn't paid much attention to it. Mm-hmm. And now they realize that their constituents were saying we have to feed ourselves. There's also a lot of people who are, well, you know, we want to do something we want to celebrate the cute farmers. We want to celebrate a, a good story we can tell. We want to attract tourists, but they don't really even have much local production to draw from right. to attract tourists. So th- there's, there's also this mismatch of people trying to do what seems sexy or popular right now mm-hmm. or what, what, the, what, their, what their colleague did, what their neighboring community did, and not um, really knowing what that means to really do it well. Right. So trying to import a model rather than say, how do we change the way our, we're living? I'm trying to focus my work now how can I make the most impact with the time I've got left to really help people think about changing systems, not simply starting a program. That's a very hard conversation to have, in part because we have money that helps, keeps people busy raising money and solving very small problems. Right. Well, you know, I think the one story I wanted to highlight in the book, I think, is really my favorite part of the book, actually, mm-hmm. which is Brighton, Colorado. It's a suburb of Denver. It's, it's close to Denver Airport, and it's, it's, it's right next to a huge expansion suburb, which is full of very, very computer-designed, ugly housing in, in a mass scale. And a couple of the farmers there, one, a long-term like a 50- or 60-year fa- family that have raised vegetables for a long time, and then a newer farm, about 10 or 15 years old, that was raising a, pick vegetables and selling produce to their neighbors. And they sat down and said, if we don't keep the agricultural quality of this community intact, this place will be gone. It'll just be houses here. It'll be strip malls and... Factories, and right. we don't want that. And they raised the issue of saving farmland in the county. It was a very contentious discussion because the the biggest opponents of saving farmland were the people who la- owned land who wanted to sell it to developer for top dollar. But I, I got to interview people to find out what was going on. And what struck me was people would argue with me if I said we should save the farmland because um, I want to sell to a developer. And if I said if I say sell to developer, they'd say, well, I want to keep the real quality of life we have here. <laughs> (laughs) And they could make both those arguments within a minute of each other without even batting an eyelash. And that kind of fractured, hurt, pain we see in political life all over the country right now was just crystallized in that moment. And the folks in uh, Adams County and Brighton let those frustrations get expressed. They just went through... Endless community meetings where people just railed at them and complained and said, you're not doing this right, and talked out of both sides of their mouth, and they let that filter out. And when that died down a while, I came up with some marketing study for the food markets in their region. What we found was that the farmers who were in place couldn't afford to buy land. They wanted to expand. There were there were three large vegetable farms that had been operating as much as 100 years, selling nationally to markets all over and not caring about Denver, not caring about Adams County. But none of them could buy land because it was too expensive. So we made the argument that the only person, the only entity that could buy land... And its development value and save it for agriculture would be the city and the county, unless you found some fantastically rich individual who would be doing that as a charity, which I I thought was unlikely. The county and the city worked together, which itself is quite stunning. And they decided to buy land at $60,000 an acre, $30,000 for land and $30,000 for water rights, and to keep that preserved for agricultural use in perpetuity. As soon as they bought the first farm, one of the loudest opponents of the measure shut up because it was her farm that was purchased. <laughs> <laughs> About a year later, a neighbor of hers put the land in conservation easement. And they now have, um, they now are, they have some city, city-owned land already, farmland that they're training people how to do organic farming mm-hmm. on city-owned property in, in this community. And they have designated 1,500 acres they believe they can save that are the best farmland with the best access to water. And they've done a really targeted job of saying. We can save this much. We can't save the rest given the development pressures we face. But let's work hard to save that. And they end up rebranding the entire community around their agricultural heritage instead of as this expansion suburb of Denver. And they're still having trouble knowing what to do about that decision. But I think it's really, uh, it's amazing courage. And I think this is such an issue in Dakota County here in Minnesota or such an issue in all over the country where the pressure for development is so strong that, I'm working at Salt Lake right now, and people can become multimillionaires overnight selling long-standing produce farms. that are right inside the metro area. And what are they going to do? Are you going to sell the land to someone, or are you going to um, try to hang on farming where you're not making much money? And that question is going to happen at us all over the country, and I'm most proud of being able to kind of put that economic argument in front of people in a way that it helped galvanize a cohesive action rather than a more of a divisive one.
1: Well, I think that's why your work is so important in that if you could show these communities, so right now the choice is agriculture is not seen as the best use of that land it doesn't have the, it doesn't have value anymore it's like well we can always raise corn and beans somewhere else but if you can show well in fact it does have value to the community and not just social value but it has it has or you know kind of community value it has economic value that there are certain crops that could be raised locally that could like you said keep that wealth local uh, keep it generated local then people don't always just see the best use of that land as development you know that kind of thing
0: yeah I think that's true and, and of course the other other situation is often the cost of services to new developments exceed the value of tax base you get on the development too right. so that happens over and over again and we've said that in many communities and people do not want to hear that because it, it interferes with the flow of political money right now but yeah. I, I think you know I think the other thing would be um, yes there's money in it but also if you make the decision based on money you still get kind of the same answers we have today if yeah. if your only decision point is money you can't go any further than that because you can always find like a, well, and that's why we have so many people focusing on new technology. We have to have, do it more efficiently and have a bigger yields and you know more export markets and all those technological fixes, which really won't get us there. It has to really be a social change of how we value our connection to the land, how we value our health, how do we take care of ourselves at work rather than getting really sick and then taking time off of work. and And valuing, you know people um, leading respectful, healthy trusting lives is kind of at the core of making it better and and i one of the problems we have with the regenerative agriculture discussion today is it's about agriculture not about food systems because we don't we cannot have regenerative agriculture unless our food systems are supporting that regeneration and are really acting in concert
1: For more on Ken Meter's work and LSP's Community-Based Food Systems Initiative, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground, episode number 283 at landstewardshipproject.org. There, you'll find a link to episode number 282, which features a conversation with Amy Bociglupo, who's leading LSP's work in this area. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@LandStewardshipProject.org at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.